for Advent this morning, I'm going to have Ms. Akala Bershale. Where is Akala at? Come on up here, Akala. She is going to take the place of, of one of the others that was going to do it this morning, but just couldn't get up the nerves. So, so Akala is going to step in and read our scripture for us this morning. And Akala will be reading from Isaiah chapter 53, if you want to follow along with her. Yes, you go ahead. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom the arm of the Lord has had been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was pu- he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, he was numbered by the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for their transgressors. And now, Kyla, if you would, it's childproof, but do the best you can. <laughs> Just like the, um, like the four outside ones, if that one, that one's about gone, ain't it? But now, hey, he promised that a, a barely burning wick he will not quench, right? So, let's see. That's what I'm, I'm working on. Yeah, the pink one too, please, ma'am. There you go. All right. Thank you, ma'am. All right, and now, do I have any chillings that uh, made any decorations this morning? Which side did we go to last week? I don't remember. Let's do, let's do this side over here. So... What have you got, Austin? Jesus is born. Jesus is born in a globe. All right. And that's what y'all have got, too. Who's got something different? What have you got, Toby? I got me a crown because Jesus is the king of all kings. All right. So a crown because Jesus is the king of all kings. Anybody got anything else different? Liam, what have you got? I got the same thing. Same as thing as Toby? All right. You got the same thing? What you got, buddy? My Christmas blessings. I like that. All right, here you go. All right, go hang them on the tree over there. Grady, what have you got, buddy? Wow, a nativity scene. Who is that right there? That's baby Jesus. That's baby Jesus? And who is that? That's that. That's that? Okay. And then who is that? That's the mom. That's the mom. Okay. All right, go hang it on the tree, buddy. What have you got, Ava? Okay, now who is that? Joseph. Joseph. I like that. All right, go hang out on the tree, wherever you want to hang it. Good job. (laughs) Amen. 
They may do it. That's right. All right. Before we go any further, we are going to be in Isaiah 53. Actually, we're going to start in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and we'll pick up there. But before we do that, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer one more time, please. Father, this morning we, um, we're at the point to where we, we want to hear from you. Father, um, we have sung praise. Father, we have um, declared your truth in song. And Father, we are so thankful for, um, for what you have done for us, how low our Redeemer was brought. Father, we, we thank you for what you have done for us. But Father, I pray right now that, um, Lord, that you would speak to us from your word. Father, I, I truly want to be able to, to hear from you. Lord, I want to be able to understand what you have done for us as much as possible. Father, I want to be able to follow you in obedience. And Father, you know we fall so short. Lord, I fall so short. But Lord, I ask you this morning that, Lord, that you would indeed open our ears, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe what we hear from you this morning. Father, I pray, Lord, that um, has already been prayed, that if there is one here that uh, does not know you as their Lord and Savior of their life, Father, I pray that today would be that day. But Lord, we are completely and wholly dependent on you. Father, without you, we can do absolutely nothing. Without you, we are hopeless sinners. And so, Father, I ask you right now that you do what you do. Let your Holy Spirit have its way in this place this morning. Speak to us now as we, as we study your word. And God, I'd ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you got an outline... If you didn't, as I always tell you, there's one on Facebook on our um, Wells Baptist page that you can pull up. But you'll notice at the outline it says that Isaiah has been warning of God's coming judgment on sin and he's been preaching salvation from judgment through the coming Messiah. And so basically that's the summary of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah has, all, has been about the man of God proclaiming to the people of the world that guys, because of our sin, judgment is coming. And as a matter of fact, it's already here, but it's coming in fullness one day. And then at the end of every proclamation of judgment, he gives a proclamation of hope. God never leaves us just, uh, there's no hope for you. But instead, God always gives us the answer. And he tells us that I am going to save you from judgment if you will trust me, if you will believe me. And so over and over again, he's been telling us about this servant of God that is coming and the, what this servant is going to do in order to save us. He told us in, in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, he said he's going to be a wonderful counselor. He's going to be the mighty God. He's going to be the everlasting Father. He's going to be the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom, the Prince of making everything right uh, th that is wrong. And so then... He also tells us in Isaiah 9 that he's going to come. The servant is going to come as a child born of a virgin. And so this is, these are the things that the Jews and even the world should have been looking for, but specifically the Jews because they were the ones that were getting the prophecies about what he was going to be, who he was going to look like. And again, they were missing it. And as you saw last week, the reason why they were missing it is because they weren't listening they, they had in their own minds what they thought they wanted God to do and what they believed God should be and how God should save them. And this is the way that it's going to come about instead of looking at what He told them over and over again in the Scriptures. And so He told us that He's going to come as a child born of a virgin. He's going to be a, a son that will be given to us. He's going to be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And one day, he's going to rule over a kingdom whose government and peace will never cease. And again, all that is in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Then we saw that the kingdom would look like, we saw what the kingdom would look like in Isaiah 11, that it would be a, a very strong city of God that will never fall as all the other cities did in judgment. And it's going to be a city of perfect peace where the lion and the lamb lay down together. The child and the cobra play together. Everyone dwells and plays together in perfect harmony. There is no turmoil in this place. It'll be a city where death is defeated and where sickness and disease and all types of suffering are no more. This city is going to be filled with feasting and joy forevermore. This will be a kingdom of people from all the ends of the earth. And so... 
Over and over through Isaiah, what we have been seeing is that God continuously unveils for us what this Savior that He is sending is going to look like so that we can recognize Him when He comes. But again, you know the problem. They didn't see Him. They missed it. Matter of fact, most everybody missed it. Uh, There was just a few shepherds. There was just a few wise men. There was just a few disciples and fishermen. There was just a few people that recognized Him when He came, and that was it. And so today, we're going to get another glimpse as to how this salvation and how this kingdom that God has promised, how it's going to come about for the faithful people of God. We're going to see today that this servant is actually going to be a servant that suffers. He's not going to be a servant that comes and just overthrows all the leaders and the rulers of the world as the Jews thought that He would do. But instead, He is going to be a servant that is going to come and He is going to suffer and He is going to die, but many are still not going to understand it. So for sake of context, you see on your outline, um, I may not have put that on yours, but God has promised to save His people and now He commands them to wake up. Look at 52 verse 1 for a minute with me um, in Isaiah and you'll see what I'm talking about. What's the first two words of Isaiah 52 verse 1? So the message to the Jewish people is what? Wake up. Wake up. So what does that tell you about their current condition? What are they doing? All right. And so here is the problem. Here is why they're going to miss it. It's because they're sleeping. They're not awake. They're not looking. They're not paying attention. They're not getting ready. But instead they are sleeping. Look with me if you would at, um, at 52 verse 11. The first two words of 52 verse 11 is what? Depart, depart, and do what? Go out from there. So he's speaking to his people that are in bondage to their sin, to Babylonian captivity at this time. And he says to them, you've done got so used to being in your bondage, you've done got so used to living in your sin that you have fallen to sleep there. And now it is time for you to get up, to wake up, and it's time for you to depart, depart, and get out of there. Why? Because I'm going to save you. And that's his message to uh, to the Jews in Isaiah chapter 52. And so he reveals more and more throughout this chapter about his salvation to these people, about his deliverance to these people, and what they need to do, and how they need to listen to him, and trust him, and believe him, and be obedient to him. And so some of the things we've seen is that as we've studied this servant that is going to lead them out of this bondage, some of the things we've seen is that he's going to be somebody that is obedient to God, where we are disobedient, right? He's going to be somebody that fulfills all of God's requirements to where we have neglected all of God's requirements. He's going to be somebody that brings justice to the earth for God. He's going to be somebody that as he brings justice, he heals bruised reeds. In other words, he's going to be compassionate. He's going to do it in long-suffering. How many of you are thankful that's the way he saves us? I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that he, he don't come at me with his rod ready to strike me down because he would have to do it every single day over and over and over again, right? But he is long-suffering, he is compassionate with us as he brings justice to the world. And he is going to fulfill all of the old covenant requirements for man because God required us to be obedient to Him, but we failed. He's going to fulfill it and be well-pleasing to God. And then we've also learned that He's going to be given as a new covenant, that when He fulfills the old, that He's going to be given a new. And I'm basically just summing up everything that you have already learned in the last three weeks, all right? This is all that we have learned about this servant of God and how he is going to save us. And we need to make sure that we are awake to it, that we're looking for it, that, we, that our eyes are open. And so notice what happens in Isaiah 52 verse 13. The first word he uses there is the word behold. And what that word means is to look. Look carefully at this. Pay attention to this. If it, weren't, if it weren't that way, he would just say, hey, my servant is going to act wisely. But that's not what he says. He says, behold, open your eyes and pay attention to this. I'm going to save you. I'm going to deliver you. I've been telling you all about this servant. And now I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him. Behold, my servant is going to act wisely. 
And ultimately what this means is that he is going to prosper. Some of your versions may even say that. My servant is going to prosper in everything he does. He is going to succeed in everything he does. The mission that I give him to save you, to deliver you, he is going to succeed. He's going to prosper. And so we're called to look at this servant. And the first thing we see in our outline today is that this servant is going to be accepted by some and he's going to be rejected by others. So the first thing, let's look at the, the acceptance of this servant in, in Isaiah 53 verse 13, or 52 verse 13. Behold, look at him, my servant is going to prosper, he is going to succeed. So this ought to be a statement of absolute assurance to the people that are waiting on salvation, right? He's not going to fail. Remember, they done got comfortable sitting in their bondage. As far as they're concerned, this is just their lot in life. This is just where I am. Have you ever had anybody... I, I remember when um, I was younger, working with the youth a lot, I had young, one young man that was struggling with sins in his life, and he finally just reached a point to where he said to me, you know, I've just decided that that's just who I am. That's just what I do. In other words, I, I can't do anything about it. Um, I'm always going to fall to this. This is just where I am, and I've just got to sit back and just trust God to save me. And this is sort of where the people have got to in this place, and they went to sleep there. They're not departing from their sin. They're just comfortable in this bondage. You ever been there before in your life? And so here we have the, him that he says, listen, this servant is going to succeed. He is going to do what he has promised that he is going to do in your life. If he told you he's going to deliver you from this, he will. If he told you that he will give you the power to come out of this bondage, guess what? He will. He is going to prosper. And then notice what is going to happen as he prospers. As he succeeds in his mission, he is going to be high. He is going to be lifted up. He is going to be exalted. So now the next question I'm sure the Jews have to ask is, how is he going to do this? Because how many of you have ever looked at your sin and in your life and think, there's no hope for me? <laughs> I should have seen every head in the building shaking. The truth of the matter is, I, I am such a sinner and I am such a mess. Um, the, tr the truth of the matter is, uh, there is no hope for me. Remember what they were saying last week? God's arm is too short. He can't reach me. He don't have enough power to deliver me from my bondage. And yet, here he comes in and he says, this servant is going to succeed. He is going to prosper. Well, God, how's he going to do this? Well, notice what he says in verse six. I mean, verse 14. I'm sorry. As, or some of your versions say, just as, just as many were astonished at you. Now, at this point, he's talking about his servant to the Jewish people, right? And so what we're seeing here in verse 14, I believe, is this. Many people were astonished at the Jewish people. Why were they astonished at the Jewish people? Because they were the kingdom of God. They were the kingdom of God's people. And now the Assyrians come in and wipe out in God's judgment the, um, the northern kingdom. I mean, they lay everything waste. Then the Babylonians come through and they wipe out the southern kingdom of Judah and they lay everything waste except for 10% of the people, just a remnant. And then they, even that they carry off to Babylon captive so that there is nothing left but ruined places. And so the world looked at this and they looked at Jerusalem and they looked at Judah and they were astonished. And he said, the way the servant is going to accomplish this and succeed is that people are going to look at you and they're going to be astonished at your judgment. But the kind of judgment that He is going to take to deliver you is nothing compared to what you think you've ever seen. Look what He says next in verse 14. As many were astonished at you and your judgment, His appearance... So you see the difference between the two? We see the astonishment of the judgment of the nation of Israel. And now we're going to look at the servant's appearance. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. You know what that means? You think when Israel and Judah was laid waste and it was burnt to the ground and there was nothing left, you think they were astonished at you? 
Wait till you see the judgment of God that's going to be poured out on this servant. His human semblance will be marred so bad that he will be completely unrecognizable. I know you've heard me say this before, but you remember when The Passion of the Christ first came out, that movie. And I was young back then, and we went to the movie theater and seen it. And I remember watching it in the movie theater, and I was young and dumb. But I remember thinking to myself, boy, Hollywood really did this up. I mean, Hollywood really did this up. I mean, they had the stripes on his back and the skin ripped from him and his face, you couldn't recognize him and the, the crown of thorns on him and him trying to carry this cross. And I remember leaving there with a hard heart thinking, <laughs> nobody, you know, why do they have to make it look so bad? But you don't know what the truth of it is. They didn't even do it justice. His human semblance was marred to the point that you could not even recognize him as a human being. And then notice what it says next. And his form, so not just his facial features, but his form was marred beyond that of the children of mankind. He didn't even look like a human being when they got done with him. This is how the servant is going to deliver you This is how the servant is going to save you. And yet, when he came and he suffered, they didn't didn't understand it. They missed it. They said, no, that's not our king. Our king and our deliverer is going to come and bring us back into the kingdom and he's going to build the walls and he's going to rebuild the temple and he's going to overthrow Rome and he's going to to feed us with with good things and he's going to make us prosper and and our kingdom grow. And are all of those things eventually going to be true? Yeah, absolutely. But God told him the way he's going to originally save you is not that way. But instead, he's going to come and he's going to suffer beyond any suffering that any human being has ever received. And then notice what happens next in verse um, verse um, 15, I'm sorry. Here's the result of his suffering. And so shall he sprinkle many nations. Now the Jews should have understood this because back in, um, I think it was Exodus 24, 8, if I gave them this verse. In Exodus 24, verse 8, Moses was commanded to actually take the sacrifice. Look what it says. Moses took the blood, and what did he do? This is his job. He takes the blood, and he's sprinkling it and throwing it on the people. And then notice what he says. Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. So the point was this. From the beginning, God has been showing that the way they're going to be delivered is when the blood of Christ is applied to their life. It started in the garden. You remember whenever Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do when they recognized they were naked? See, what you remember is that they came and got some leaves and tried to close themselves. And sometimes that cover up, that'll work, right? But God said, no, that's not sufficient. It wasn't sufficient because it didn't cover enough of their body it wasn't sufficient because it didn't cover the true guilt. And the only thing that would cover it is what did God do next in the garden? He went and got an animal. An animal that Adam had named, that Adam was responsible to care for, that Adam was responsible to nurture and to grow. And this animal that Adam and Eve loved, God took and He killed it. And He took the blood and he applied it, and he clothed them with the animal skins. And so the point being is this. God has been showing us since the beginning that a blood sacrifice will be required to remove the guilt. There is no other way. When the Passover came, God said, When I see what? The blood, I will what? When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And so God has always been telling His people that the way I am going to deliver you from your sin is that I am going to give you a sacrifice. And He is going to suffer greatly and He is going to die. And so we see that the result of this in verse 15 is that He sprinkles many nations because of His blood. And then notice in verse 15 it says, 
Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. And here the kings are representative of the nations. You're fixing to get into the Jewish people's response, but here you see that the acceptance is that the Gentiles, the nations of the world, they're going to accept him. Why? Look what it says. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Why? For that which has not been told them, they see it. In other words, they didn't hear the same message the Jews did, right? The Jews were the ones that got the prophecies of God and the Jews were the ones that were supposed to take the prophecies of God and give them to the world. Remember what he told Abraham? Through you all the nations of the world shall be blessed. But they failed. This servant, on the other hand, succeeds. And when these kings and these nations are told of what Jesus has done, they believe because they see it. And it says, and that which they have not heard, again, they're not Jews, they don't have this. They do what? They understand. So here are the results. The nations of the world, because of what Jesus did, they accept Him. They accept Him. And that's exactly what happened when Paul went to the Gentiles. Um, and you can read about that in Romans 15, I believe it is. Paul actually quotes this scripture right here as him going to the Gentiles and them accepting it, but the Jews rejecting it. And so we know we're interpreting this correctly, all right? And so here's the first thing we see, is that the servant is going to be accepted by the people that were not even his people. He is going to sprinkle many nations, not just the Jewish nation, but many nations and the kings of these nations and the people of these nations, they are going to come and they are going to accept Him and they are going to trust Him as their Lord and Savior. But now we move to the servant's rejection. Go with me to Isaiah 53 verse 1. Notice the pronouns that change. And what I mean by pronouns is that over where I just read, He said, He shall be high and lifted up. As many were astonished at you... And His appearance. So you've got these singular pronouns, right? He, she, you. But now look what changes in 53 verse 1. Who has believed what He has heard from who? Us. So now we're moving to the Jewish people talking. They're looking at the servant being accepted in the world and now they're going to look at their rejection. And I also want you to notice that what you're going to see in this is that it's talking in past tense. And so what we're seeing is a prophecy about what the Jews that rejected Him at first, but then they finally saw Him and finally understood who He was and they believed in Him. This is what they're going to say when they look back at how they rejected Him. They saw the way the nations received Him. And remember, Romans chapter 11, if you remember this, Paul said that God did it this way to provoke Israel to jealousy. God wanted the Israels to be able to recognize Jesus and see Jesus so that when the world turned to God and the Jews didn't, the Jews would look at it and go, we've missed it. And it provokes them to jealousy and they begin to seek the Lord so that He can be found. And so this is what the Jews say whenever they finally... Notice what it says. Who has believed what He has heard from us? You see that? Past tense. And now you want to know the answer to that? How many of the Jews actually believed it? Not many. And so the answer to this is that we didn't believe. Not many Jews believed when they were told, when they heard. Remember... They were told, they had heard. The kings believed when they had never been told and they had never heard, right? The Jews are saying, well, who believed what they heard from us? Nobody. We didn't believe it. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Guess what? They had every reason to believe it, right? They had seen God's salvation. See, here's the way that you would read that. In the, in the older days, I might as well just stand up. In the older days, um, you would, they, if you were going to battle, they would take their robe and they would pull the robe up so they would lay bare their arm so that they could swipe and, and, and swing and do everything that they needed to do. And so one example of that, go back with me to 52 verse... Um, hang on, I have to find it. 
52 verse 10. Look at what 52 verse 10 says to the Jews. The Lord has what? Bared His what? His holy arm. And then look what happens. Before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So the imagery that Isaiah gives is of God taking His sleeve and rolling up His sleeve. And He has laid bare His arm and now He's ready to go to war. And so we see this same imagery applied over here in Isaiah 53. And he says here, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And to who are the people that have seen God overthrow the Egyptians? And who are the people that have seen God part the waters? And who are the people that have seen God pass over and kill all the firstborn of, of Egypt? And so over and over again, the Lord in His mighty arm and His power to save has been revealed over and over again. But how many of those people who heard the report and those people who had seen the salvation of the Lord, how many of those accepted the Savior? Not many. Not many. They rejected Him as Savior. And so that's what this is saying right here. On the one hand, Jesus was accepted by the nations. On the other hand, the Jews look at it and go, We missed it. We missed it. And then look what it says in uh, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant. So here we have another image right here. And I love this imagery that we have. He grew up before him like a young plant. And so in other words, they should have seen it. But here's the reason why they didn't see it. Why they didn't believe it. Because he didn't grow up before him like some great oak tree. He grew up before him like a tender young plant. And notice what it says next. It keeps doing the image. And like a root out of dry ground. In the, um, in the Middle East you have um, very dry parts of the year. Actually it only rained I think two times of the year. And so during the hottest parts of the year the place would just dry up to the point that you can picture it in your head. You have this desert with hard packed clay and these deep cracks that have formed all through it because of how dry it is. And what they're saying is that in a place where nothing should have ever grown, in a place to where nothing comes from, it's desolate, this is where he grew up like a, a little sprout. So they have this picture of out of this crack of this desert, this one little green plant. And yet, it don't look like nothing. It doesn't look like anybody because look what he says next. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And so here we see another picture. It wasn't like that you would have went and grabbed this thing like a rose and plucked it and went and gave it to your loved one. No, when you looked at this plant, you would have looked at it and said it's nothing, it's a weed. He had no form, no comeliness that they should desire Him. Now see, you know all those pictures that your grandma got hanging in, in her uh, kitchen of Jesus with His long flowing blonde hair? I'm sorry to tell you this, that is not the biblical description of Jesus. The biblical description of Jesus is that He had no form or no beauty that you should desire Him at all. I can tell you that when Jesus came as the lowliest of us, Apparently, He literally came as the lowliest of us. And so, here we have this image here of why they didn't believe the report. Why they, they didn't trust what they had heard. And even though the arm of the Lord had been revealed to them, they did not believe it, they did not trust in it. And no, it's just a few scriptures of why. In John chapter 1, 1 verse 46, I think this was Nathaniel, if I remember right. But basically what we have here is... Jesus has been uh, known as the Messiah by one of the disciples. And he tries to bring his uh, brother and he tries to tell him that we have found the Messiah and it's Jesus of Nazareth. And notice what Nathanael says. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? In other words, when they saw where Jesus came from, where he grew up, who he was, what he looked like, they were no different than one of his disciples right here at the first. And they said, that can't be him. That can't be him. He comes from Nazareth. Or um, 
I know I cut up with y'all all the time, but he comes from Minor Hill, or he comes from Elkton, or he comes from, you know what I'm saying. You pick whatever place he comes from, the projects over, and wherever you think of that is the lowliest parts of, of the towns, you know. This is what they were looking at. They said, nothing good comes out of Nazareth, and yet, this is where he came from. And so, then in John chapter 7, verse 44, look what he says next. Some of them wanted to... Oh, I'm sorry, I must have gave you the wrong scripture, buddy. Y'all forgive me, I do that sometimes. Let me see if it's... Um, well, y'all skip over that. Anyway, the point being is this. He didn't look like a Savior King. He didn't come from a place where they expected a Savior King from, would come from. And this is the reason why they say we didn't believe it. We didn't understand it. Even though we heard it, even though we had seen the salvation of the Lord, we didn't get it. And so notice what happens in verse 3 of Isaiah 53. Because of that, this was the result. He was despised and what? Rejected. So on the first hand... The nations, they accept Him. On the second hand, the Jews, the ones that the arm of the Lord had been revealed to, the ones that had heard, the ones that had been told, they missed it. They rejected Him. And that's exactly what happened. And we see this in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. This is where, look, look at this. It says, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And there he's quoting from earlier parts of Isaiah that you and I have already studied. But again, the point being is this. God knew that they were going to reject Him. And this is the reason why God blinded their eyes, God deafened their ears, and God hardened their hearts so that they couldn't see, they, they wouldn't hear, and they wouldn't believe because God knew that they were going to reject Him, and so he, he developed the plan that would lead them through the Gentiles. And then also in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 through 23, look at what this is. From that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and do what? So how did He show them this? Took them back to the Scriptures. They should have known, they should have seen it, but again... They didn't want that king. That's not what they desired. That's who they desired. And that's something you and I have to be careful of. Do you know today that we're still building gods in our own image? I mean, how many people in the world are, are, are making God be okay with who they are? With what they do, with the lifestyles they want to live? How many of us try to justify the things that we do and we try to make a God that is okay and that, that is just, just still compassionate toward our sin and all of these things. And the point is that this is exactly what they did. They had found a way to make God into everything that they wanted Him to be. And so, uh, let me keep reading here. From that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. So in other words, the Jews are going to reject Him. And then, not only is he going to have to suffer, but he's going to have to be killed. And you're also going to see that he can prove from the Scriptures that he was also on the third day going to be raised. All of these things Jesus showed them. But notice what happened. Peter took him aside and did what? No, you won't. That will never happen to you. And so here's what we see in this. Even Peter, knowing the Scriptures... Even Peter, whenever he sees Jesus and everything that the Scriptures have told him, when they see him, that's not what they wanted. That's not what they wanted to see. And so because of their own sinful hearts, because of their own sinful desires, instead of listening to what the Bible says about what God is going to do, they make up in their own mind what we want God to do. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? You know why this is important to you and I? Because we can be guilty of the exact same thing. I have learned over the years when I study this Bible to let God tell me who He is. How many of us read a way about God, we look at it and go, I don't know, God can't be that way, I don't like it. Or I've heard people say, well, if that's the kind of God that God is, then I don't want to... You know, I'm telling you, 
It don't matter what you want God to be. It don't matter what you think God is. God is who He is. And even if God has an attribute about Him that you would look at and go, that's not right, that don't make it wrong. God is the definition of right. And whatever He does is right. And so it's up to us to go to the Bible and let God tell us who He is, what He requires, and it's up to us to sit back and say, yes, sir. My daddy used to tell me all the time, he'd say, son, go do this. But why? I don't understand. Because I said so. And guess what? That was good enough. Um, I didn't like it, but it was good enough. Why? Because he's daddy. And if daddy says so, daddy says so. And so we need to treat God in a way that we understand that He is who He is no matter what we want Him to be. Uh, keep reading with me. Peter said, get thee behind me. Or he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Yeah, there you go. He turned and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a what? A hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on what? You see what I'm saying? You see the heart of this? The heart of this is... You don't want the things of God. You want what you want. And how many of you know that's the root of our sin? I don't want what God wants. I want what I want. We are here today to listen to God so that we can say, God, what do you want? God, what did you do? God, what should we believe? And this is where we're at. God, we want to hear from you. This is what... They failed to do. And so, therefore, he was despised and he was rejected by man. Now go with me one more verse. Mark chapter 9, verse 12. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and I'm not going to explain that this morning. But how is it written of the Son of Man that he should what? Suffer many things and be treated with... Jesus told them over and over again that it is written... All you have to do is read your Old Testament and you're going to see that the servant that is going to save you is going to be a suffering servant. Not only that, his appearance is going to be so marred beyond any human resemblance, but by that he will sprinkle many nations. And the people that were never told and the people that never heard, they'll believe it. They'll see it and they'll understand it. And so this is where you and I want to be this morning. We want to be in that category, not in the category that rejects Him. Go with me next to the servant substitution in Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 6. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Notice what He says, the first word of, of verse 4. Surely, so now remember, the verse before He had said He was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, I skipped that. So here, he wasn't even somebody that you would even looked at. He was somebody that men would have just ducked their head when they walked by. He was somebody that, that, that you wouldn't even have looked twice at. If you passed him on the road, you wouldn't have thought him. He was, he was a nobody, is basically what this is saying. But then notice what they found out in verse 4. Surely, he has actually borne our griefs, and surely he has carried our sorrows. And here we have another image of a beast of burden. So here Jesus has become this pack mule, if you will, that you load up all of your burdens on to carry it up the hill for you so that you don't have to do it. And that's exactly what the Jews that look back at him, when they missed it and they finally see it, they look back and they go, surely the truth of the matter is that even though he looked like a nobody, even though we didn't esteem Him, even though we despised and rejected Him, but surely the truth is, He's actually borne my sorrows. He's actually borne my griefs. And so what we see here is that the reason why His human resemblance was marred beyond, so that He was unrecognizable was because He had become the substitute to pay our sins. He had become the one that took our place. And so we see the substitution of the servant here. Notice what he says in this, in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and surely he has carried our sorrows. Yet we did what? Esteemed him stricken. That word esteem means to look upon and to consider with great care. 
And so here we looked upon him and we considered that the fact of the matter is he's just been stricken. And not just stricken, and that means to be struck. But then look what he says next. Actually smitten by who? God. The Jews looked at Jesus and they said, God killed him. And in a sense, they were right. And they looked at him and they said, well, he's being punished for something that he has done and God is punishing him. But the truth of it is that they had figured out is that surely what's actually happened is he did it for us. He has become our substitute. And then keep reading with me. He says, but even though we thought he was smitten by God, even though we thought he was afflicted by God and struck by God, but the truth is this. He was actually pierced for what? For our transgressions. So there we see that our punishment was on Him. Do y'all see that? That's the reason why I say He was a substitute servant. He was the one that put Himself in the place of what you and I deserved. He says there that He was pierced for our transgressions. So in other words, God didn't actually punish Him for something He did like we thought. But instead, God punished him for what we have done. And then look what he says next. And he was crushed for our iniquities. So he's been stricken, he's been smitten, he's been afflicted, he's been pierced, he's been crushed. And all of it was because of our sin, what we deserved. But notice what the end of verse 5 says. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Shalom. What we have here is the fact that a substitute took place. An an exchange took place. What you have here is the doctrine of what we call imputation. It means that God imputed something to Jesus, and then He took something from Jesus and He imputed it to us. And you see that in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, where the Apostle Paul says, He made Him, Jesus, who knew what? No sin. He's perfect. He didn't deserve punishment. But He made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that in Him we might what? Become the righteousness of God. Do you see this exchange that took place? Jesus becomes our substitute for sin and He bears the the punishment that you and I deserve. Afflicted, smitten, beaten, um, all of these things crushed. And yet, He was perfect. And then God takes His perfect life and He gives it to you as if you lived it. He treats Him as if He lived your life and He treats you as if you lived His life. But some of us want to look at God and say, that's not fair what you do, God. Let me tell you something, you don't want fair. You don't want fair. You want mercy. You want grace. And that's exactly what God did for you. (coughs) Excuse me. I want to show you a scripture, if you would, from... um, And I don't even know if I gave you this or not, Nathan. It's from Exodus chapter 34. I think I did. Verse 5 through 7. When Moses was on the mountain... He asked God a question. He said, God, please show me who you are. Show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to know you. I want to understand you. And then God said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And I'm going to pass by you and I'm going to declare my name to you because that's how you're going to know me is through my name. And look what God tells him his name is. The Lord descended in a cloud and he stood with him there and he proclaimed the name of the great I Am. That's Yahweh. All right, go to verse 6. The Lord passed by him, Yahweh passed before him, and he proclaimed, The Lord, the great I Am, the great I Am, a God merciful and gracious. That sounds good, don't it? That's what we want. A God slow to anger. That's good. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Let's stop right there, because man, don't that sound good. But there's a problem. 
God cannot do this because of this next part. But who will by no means do what? So on the one hand, God has to be just because that is who He is, right? The guilty must be punished. Let me ask you a question. If um, How many of you in here have children? I'm going to tug at your heartstrings for a minute. Let's say that, God forbid, somebody killed one of your children. And you go to court. And the... The murderer stands up and says, You know, Judge, I just I want to ask you to forgive me. And the judge says, Well, you know what? I'm merciful and I'm gracious. So, you know what? Sure. Don't worry about it. I forgive you. How do you feel? Justice has not been done, right? Your wrong has not been righted. If that judge is good, if he is a righteous judge, he must punish the evil. No way around it. God is a just judge, but on the same side, He is also loving, gracious, kind. How can God be both just and still give mercy and grace to those who are guilty? That is the problem. God has to have a servant that is able to satisfy the wrongs that have been done. Justice has to be served. And God has to have a servant that is able to show His grace and mercy at the same time. How can God keep steadfast love for thousands, forgive iniquity and transgression of sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty? How does God do that? Well, go with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 26, and look what this says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So who's guilty? We deserve the wages of sin, which is death, right? We deserve an eternal punishment. You know why? Because your offense is against an eternal God. You know how long it takes to pay for an offense against an eternal God? That's the reason why the torment is eternal. Because you will never get done paying for it. But the gift of God, because God is also an eternal God, is eternal life, right? And you will have an eternity to enjoy His gift. But because we're all sinners, and yet we are justified... We are cleared of our guilt by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as an appeasement. In other words, this is what satisfied God's wrath. God put Him forward as an appeasement by His blood to be received by faith. Why would you do that, God? This was to show God's righteousness. How does it do that? Because in His divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. In other words, he didn't, he, he cleared the guilty. Well, how does that make God righteous if he's a just God? Well, because they were looking forward to the appeasement that was coming. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be what? Just and the what? And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me tell you the plan of salvation this morning. God needed a servant that could appease His wrath on all of your wrongs. And the only blood that could do it would be eternal blood because you owed an eternal offense. You can't do that. It would take you an eternity to pay for it. Jesus, on the other hand, can pay for it with one sacrifice. And by that blood... This is the reason why when we go back to Hebrews and we read about the sacrifices that had to be made day after day after day because it was never enough. But when Jesus offered His blood, which all of that pointed to, when that happened, it was sufficient. It was enough. And God was just because He paid for all the sins. He didn't just clear you. He didn't just look at you and say, Hey, I forgive you. No. He looked at you and He said, Those that trust in Jesus Christ as their payment, I forgive because of what Jesus done. So He's just. And not only is He just, but He's also the justifier. He's the one that looks at you and declares you not guilty, even though you are guilty. Is any of this making sense this morning? 
And so this is what the servant has to do. And this is exactly what the servant does so that the name of God, the nature of God can be fulfilled in every way. God can be gracious and merciful. God can forgive and iniquity and keep steadfast love for thousands and God can keep covenant with thousands. Why? Because of what Jesus did and yet He can still not clear the guilty. Why? Because of what Jesus did. And that is why this servant is the only one that can save us from the sin that we have. So the servant had to be a substitute. And notice, go back to Isaiah 53. I'll speed up through this. He says here that He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The servant is going to be a substitute. So let me go through these again. The servant is going to be accepted by the nations, which is exactly what you saw happen, right? The servant is going to be rejected by the Jews, which is exactly what you saw happen, right? And the servant is going to be a substitute for all those that pack on Him as our pack mule, all of our sorrows, all of our griefs, all of our sins, all of our burdens, and we trust Him to carry it off and to take it away from us. And God is just, and God is the justifier of the one who has faith in this one that bears our burdens for us. But then in verse 7, we see the servant's death, and I'll go through this very quickly. We'll just read through it. He was oppressed... And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. So here we see that um, he had a willing death, right? Jesus said in John chapter 10, he said, nobody, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. And see, the Jews would have understood this. They would have understood that this next picture, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. In other words, they ought to be picturing the sacrificial lamb that's being led to the slaughter, yet he never opens his mouth. He never lets out a single bye. He just walks right up and he goes right to the slaughter. And the same way is the way the servant is going to do. Like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 8, by oppression or by restraining, by restraining and by judgment he was taken away. They went to him like he was a thief, even though he didn't fight them, did he? But by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? You know, they say that um, in this day and time when they would execute somebody, especially with the Jews, the Jews would actually have an a announcer go in front of the one that was being accused of guilt. And they would announce... If anyone can prove this man innocent, or if anyone has anything to say about this person's innocence, let them come forward now. And yet, what we find out is that if they did this with Jesus, and it was Jewish tradition, they likely did. Nobody ever came forward. Nobody ever stood up. It was a lonely death. It was a willful death. He went on his own, never opening his mouth, not a single word of support in what he did. And then nobody, as for his generation, considered that he was cut off from the land of the living. Nobody even really thought about his death that he died. And then notice what it says next in verse 9. Because he had an exalted death. And they made his grave with the wicked. So he was sacrificed between two thieves. There was also a burning garbage dump behind him that it was tradition for anybody that was executed to be thrown, their bodies after they died, to be thrown into that dump and burned. But God saw fit to exalt him in his death. And you remember what happened? Joseph of Arimathea went and he asked Pilate for his body. And then Nicodemus, who had come to him in the night, came with spices, I think 75 pounds if I remember right, of spices. And he came and he... He uh, buried him according to the Jewish tradition. And they put him in a tomb that had never been used, that had been carved out of the rock, a rich man's tomb. And look what it says in verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, so he died between two thieves, and with a rich man in his death. 
although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And then verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. There are some people who say what I'm preaching to you today is an example of, of cosmic child abuse. I want to tell you today, it didn't please the Lord to crush him just because God loves to whip kids. It pleased the Lord to crush him because of what it accomplished. Because now because of what this servant has willingly done, God can be just and punish sin. And God can be the justifier of the one who trusts in Him. Now go with me to verse 11. Or I'm sorry, keep in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering from guilt, he shall see his offspring. So we see his success here. He don't stay dead. How many dead people get to see their offspring? Don't happen, does it? You know, I hope one day that I get to see maybe grandkids or, or great-grandkids. But the truth of the matter is, if I die before they come along, guess what? I won't see them. But this one dies, and now he gets to see his offspring. And not only that, look what it says next. He shall prolong his days. <laughs> How does a dead man prolong his days? Here's the answer to that. What you have in the Scriptures right here is the resurrection. He's not dead. Now he's alive. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man, but now he sees his offspring, now he prolongs his days, and then look what it says, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall this righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death. So I close with saying this. If they missed this Savior because they heard but they didn't hear, they saw but they didn't see, how easy will it be for you and I to miss Him when He comes again? Because we heard, but we didn't hear. And we saw, but we didn't see. I think this is a warning to you and I to make sure that we listen to what God has to say and not just what we think He's going to do and what we think He's going to be. Because that's the mistake that they made. I think we need to be careful this morning that we don't build a God that suits our desires and our needs, but instead we come to the Bible, we come to the Word, and we allow God to tell us who He is and what He does. And then finally, we should pray and ask God to help us always stand in His defense. Because one of the ways they failed is they had an announcer going before Him, likely, that was saying, if anybody can stand for this man, come do it now. And yet there was not a single one. And how many of us are even ashamed to just pray to Him when we sit down and have our meal in public? How many of us are, uh, we, we think, we say, yeah, I'll stand for you. We're like Peter. You remember what Peter said? Lord, I don't care if everybody leaves you. I will never deny you. You know what happened just a few minutes later? Three times Peter said, I don't know that man. Even his own disciples didn't stand for him. I don't know that man. You think you can be any different? You know, the truth of the matter is, we're just like Peter, maybe worse. And so I say to you today, don't ever be ashamed to stand in defense for Jesus. Don't ever be ashamed of Him as your Savior and as your Lord, no matter what it looks like and no matter where you are. And Lord, forgive us where we have failed in that. And I, lastly, I say this. I want you to try to imagine this morning, if you will, a man who was perfect in every way. Just a man. He's perfect in every way, completely free from all wrong, all sin, and yet he suffers in life in every way, even to the point of unrecognizable human semblance. No one will stand up for him, and finally his life is cut off and he dies. And now imagine that you were the one that should have been in his place because you were the actual guilty party. And you watched that man take all that. You watched him do all that and yet it was supposed to be on you. And now you find out
that he willingly did this. It wasn't something that was forced upon him. He willingly did it so that he could save you. You remember what Peter said? He said, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so this morning, the Bible says this is why we celebrate Christmas. Because the only way Jesus, the Son of God, God Almighty can do this is if He humbles Himself and He becomes a man. Other than that, God can't die. Other than that, God can't suffer. God has to not grasp all of His deity and instead take on all human quality and walk through this life as a human being to live out a perfect life for you so that that can be applied to you and to die the death of a wretched sinner so that you can be justified and that guilt can be taken away from you. And now in Romans chapter 10, the Bible tells us that if we will confess that Jesus indeed is this Lord, And if we will believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, just like He promised He would. In other words, if we believe God, you know what the result will be? You will be saved. Bobby prayed a prayer earlier. He said, Lord, if there is one here this morning that does not know you in the free pardon of sin, let today be the day that they come to know you. This is the gospel. This is what we celebrate Christmas for. And you've got two choices this morning. Number one, you're going to eventually pay the price for your sin on your own. And it will take an eternity to do it. Number two, you confess Him as your Lord and you trust Him and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead to prove that He had defeated the payment for sin. And if you'll do that, God promises you will be saved. And then he says, and we'll get into this next week in Isaiah 54, or Isaiah 55 I think it is. He said, if anyone thirsts for this, if you thirst for forgiveness, if you hunger for righteousness, if you want salvation with your God, you know what you do? Come. Come. And I will share the knowledge with you of this Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I will help you to put your faith and your trust in Him. And today can be the day that you can and will be saved. But it's completely up to you. You can be ashamed and you can sit there and you can be just like the Jews that wouldn't stand up. You can sit there, you can hear it, you can be told and you cannot believe. The choice is yours. Or you can hear like you've never heard. And you can see things that you've never imagined and you thought you'd never be told. And you can be sprinkled and you can be accepted and you can be saved. That's your choices this morning.